So our scripture this morning is from Philippians chapter 2. We like here at Christ City just to honor uh, the reading of God's word and that this is God's word to us by standing as we read this together. So please stand as we read this passage. I'll read our passage from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all respond by saying, thanks be to God. Okay? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can have a seat. Well, we're in a sermon series uh, throughout the months of May and June called We Believe. When we're simply looking back at the Apostles' Creed, this ancient church creed that the church throughout time and the church around the world has said together and clung to and proclaimed, these are the things that we hold on to, these are the things that universally we believe as a church. And so right now we're in this section about Jesus. Who is Jesus? We just said together, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. A couple weeks ago, Robin preached on the reality that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then last week, Jamin preached on John chapter 8 about Jesus being God, that Jesus is divine. Jesus said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. I am Yahweh, Jesus says. He identifies himself as divine, as God himself. And this morning, we're looking at the reality that Jesus is human, that Jesus was born as a man. This complex, rich, and hopeful theological idea called the incarnation. Here's what J.I. Packer, he's Uh, He's a Christian theologian and writer. He wrote one of my favorite books called Knowing God. This is what J.I. Packer says about the incarnation. He says that it's the supreme mystery, the supreme mystery, 
one of the greatest mysteries of all of time, of all of humankind, one of the greatest mysteries is the incarnation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God becoming man. It's like one of those things, like a week ago when my daughter was born, I had this very clear thought. I thought, everything is different now. Nothing will ever be the same because of this moment. And the incarnation is like that. It's one of those things that when you encounter it, and when you encounter it over and over and over, everything has changed because of this thing that has happened that we're looking at again this morning. It's like, it's like one of those things that when you start to, and you'll never reach the end of this, but as you start to wrap your mind around it, as you encounter it time and time again, it makes sense of everything else in a new and fresh way. For example, has anyone here read Harry Potter? Nobody's excited about Harry Potter, that's okay. Let's be more excited about Jesus. Um, I love Harry Potter, I read the books as they were coming out, um, and then I reread them about, uh, not, not this last winter, but the one before. And the second time around, it was even better. I can't wait for the third time around. The second time around, it was even better because after you read the seventh book, like it makes sense of everything else as you read books one through six. You're like, oh, now I know what a horcrux is, right? And that changes everything. Now I know that some people here aren't who I thought they were, and that changes everything. I see everything in a new light because of this thing that I experienced and I encountered. And the incarnation is like that. It changes everything. You'll never see anything the same way again because of this thing, this reality, this glorious truth that you've encountered. And even if you've encountered it in the past, it's worth looking at again and again and again. So that's, that's what we're gonna do this morning. I could talk about this for um, hours and hours and hours, but I won't. I've really only got two ideas that I wanna communicate to you this morning about the incarnation. Two theological, biblical ideas about the incarnation and how those ideas, how those truths change everything as we orient ourselves around Jesus, around our incarnate Lord, how these truths will change everything about your life and also everything about our church. And I really don't try that hard to do this. It just sometimes works out. Both of these things start with the letter E to help you remember. Um, the first idea, the first truth is uh, really clear here in Philippians chapter two and it's that Jesus emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself. And the second thing is that Jesus empathizes with you. Jesus empathizes with you. So we're gonna look at each of those and then we're gonna talk about as we orient ourselves around our incarnate Lord, how these magnificent truths will reshape our lives and our church. First, Jesus emptied himself. We're gonna look 
really slowly, like word for word through three verses in Philippians chapter two. They'll be on the screen behind me, but if you have a Bible, uh, it, it helps for you to have it open so we can all be kind of reading along together. Three verses, Philippians chapter two, verses six, seven, and eight. These verses are um, a sort of like progression or beautiful crescendo. They build and they climax at the end of at verse eight. So let's look at these together. Verse six. Who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God. Pause. There's a lot to unpack already. Though he was in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. Paul, the apostle, identifies just like Jesus does. He identifies Jesus as God himself. He says that Jesus is in the form of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He's God himself. He's the very essence of God, the same stuff as God, the same nature as God. He's the form of God. John, in John chapter 1, says that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God. He's in the very form of God. Jesus has no beginning. He's existed from eternity past in union and communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he has no end. He will exist forever and ever and ever in union and communion with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and with his people, us. That's beautiful. Jesus is God. But look at the second half of verse 6. This is astounding. Verse 6b, but Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he's in the form of God, Jesus didn't hold tightly to the privileges and benefits of being divine. Just like so many of the wicked and oppressive kings and royalty that have existed throughout humanity who held on to this idea of divine right, Jesus didn't hold on to that. He held it loosely. He didn't grasp. He didn't grasp with being God. Instead, he was willing to empty himself. Verse 7, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? What does that even mean? Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, didn't grasp too tightly to all the privileges of being God, but he emptied himself by becoming a human, by being born as a man. And we would expect, like if this were your first time to encounter this, we would expect that God would be born as like the highest royalty that the world at that time had ever seen. But that's not what happened. Jesus lowered himself by being born not just as any human, but by being born as a man to unwed, insignificant, impoverished parents in a seemingly insignificant town outside of a hotel in a stable. Jesus lowered himself that much. Paul says it a different way in one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 2 Corinthians verse 8, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was rich. All the rights of divinity were his, yet he didn't grasp onto those things. He lowered himself by being born as a man. He made himself poor for your sake so that through his poverty you might become rich. And he lowered himself all the way to being a normal, maybe even less than normal man in the first century. Listen to what J.I. Packer, again, in my favorite book, Knowing God, Listen to the way that he, he describes the incarnation. This, this quote's in your bulletin, too, so you could take it home and think about it, ponder it for the rest of your life. That'll be good for you. Look, listen to what J.I. Packer says about this. It is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. This week, in the middle of the night, while you were all sleeping, hopefully, um, I was awake a lot this week in the middle of the night. Um, but at this one moment, I was awake and I was changing the, um, I'm trying to say this in an appropriate way for church, uh, changing the biggest blowout of a dirty diaper that I've ever encountered. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, like we were changing the diaper, but it was such a, like, tragic blowout that we had to actually go uh, put Jude in the sink to give her a bath. And then in the middle of the night, I'm like washing her clothes in the sink and trying to like uh, stain, prevent, them, prevent stain. Like I don't want her clothes, this like pretty white, little roses on it, uh, pajama outfit to be brown for the rest of, the rest of her uh, newborn season. Um, so in the middle of the night, I'm up like in the sink, like trying to get rid of this stain. And what's going through my mind is like, man, how providential is it? That this week I'm preaching on the incarnation. That's what I was thinking in the middle of the night. Thank you, God, for helping me, being gracious to me. Help me think that. Um, and what I was thinking is like, our God, our God experienced this. Except even worse, because like Mary and Joseph did not have the luxuries of modern plumbing and running water and like modern diapers that are disposable and all these things. And I'm like, man, what would it have been like in the first century? Jesus, surely he had this sort of blowout diaper, right? Like Jesus lowered himself. God, God lowered himself that much. That's, 
like J.I. Packer is right, the more you encounter this, the more you think about this, the more staggering it becomes, the extent to which Jesus lowered himself because of how much he loves you. But here's the thing. Try to fathom this. It's, it's unfathomable. When Jesus lowered himself to become a man, he didn't give up, he didn't grasp too tightly to being God, but he didn't give up his divine nature. The person Jesus Christ is 100% fully human. And at the same time, the person Jesus Christ is 100% fully divine. Unfathomable. Like we can think about that for the rest of our lives and we'll understand it more and more, but you'll never reach its end. And I know for some of you that keeps you from buying into this. But doesn't it make sense, like if God is real, doesn't it make sense that he would be out of your understanding's reach? Right? Like you wouldn't, don't you want a God that you can't fully get or comprehend or fathom? Like a God that you can worship, that you can consider, that you can meditate on, that you can reflect on for the rest of eternity. And there will always be new things for you to discover. I've told you all this story before, but it's worth sharing again. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Mississippi. Um, in high school, we actually moved out of Grenada into Holcomb, Mississippi, which most of y'all are probably not familiar with, um, but it's the country in Mississippi. And um, my grandfather's a farmer, a cattle farmer, and so I remember as a small child, like riding around with my grandfather on his tractor, and I remember one time we came to this, uh, this little creek and uh, we were like throwing rocks into the creek and just kind of hanging out looking into the creek. And it's sort of this dirty Mississippi Creek in the summertime when there's not a lot of rain. It's like Memphis. It's, it's not a lot of rain and it's really oppressively hot, maybe even hotter than Memphis. And uh, like we're just looking down into this creek and like upon first glance, you can see all that there is to see. Like you can see the dirt and you can see the rocks. If there are little animals or little bitty fish swimming around, like you can see all of that. And that's the way that many of us think about or want to think about God. But God is not like this dirty little creek in Mississippi in the summer. God is more like, but even greater still than like the deepest depths of the ocean where like leagues under the sea there's coral reefs and fish that haven't even yet been discovered like we could spend the rest of all of our lives together combined and we never see or experience or encounter everything that there is to encounter in those ocean depths. That's the sort of God that I want to worship. Like this is unfathomable. And the incarnation, it's not this sort of formula that we can figure out. It's about a person. It's about a person who's worthy of our worship for all of eternity. In fact, as Paul's writing here, this is, this is probably a hymn um, so that the early church could memorize it, maybe even sing it, as he's 
penning these words, you can almost see him like, like worship bursting forth in his heart. Like almost see Paul like wanting to jump out of a seat, like throw off his prison chains and like run out worshiping Jesus. Like listen to the end of this section in Philippians chapter two. As he's thinking about the incarnation, like see, like it leads, stirs Paul's hearts to worship. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like Paul's like bursting forth with praise. Like the incarnation is about a person and a person who's ultimately worthy of our worship. It gets even crazier, y'all. Let's look at verse eight. If that weren't enough, that Jesus would lower himself to become a man, and not just any man, but a seemingly insignificant man, a very normal man in first century. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further. He descended even more. He lowered himself more. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not just any death, Paul says even, even, he lowers himself even more, even death on a cross. These three verses are a crescendo, a progression. There's a natural build of Jesus lowering himself. Wow, that's amazing, that's astounding. He lowers himself even more, wow, look, oh man. He lowers himself even more, wow. The incarnation is astounding. Not just any death, even death on a cross. Like one of the most gruesome forms of capital punishment throughout all of humanity, death on a cross. Where he experienced physical, mental, emotional, spiritual torment and neglect. That's the sort of death that your Savior, God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, that's the sort of death, that's the extent to which he lowered himself for you, for you, because he loves you. Another one of my favorite books, Knowing God, another one is called The Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, this is the way that uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones describes the love of God, the love of Jesus towards you. Jesus loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Look at Jesus. Look at the man and how he lowered himself and be moved by his love for you. As you orient yourself around your incarnate Lord Jesus. And as we as a church orient ourselves around Jesus, this reality will change us. As this settles down into your heart more and more, this is gonna change you. And that's what Paul is talking about in the first five verses of Philippians chapter two. Look specifically at verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
If you take a step back and do an inventory of your life, these verses should really challenge you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you be not interested in yourself, but be interested in other people. Like count others more significant than yourselves. If you take a step back, do some inventory in your life, this should challenge you. Because like, uh, like Robin says, y'all have probably heard him say it before, if we're honest, in our church specifically, in our culture at large, but also in our church, we have a lot of folks, all of us, who are more interested in being interesting than being interested. I'm more interested in myself and making me interesting than I am in being interested in you and how you're doing and how I can care for you and the sorts of things that you like and dislike and learning what it looks like, like Jesus, to love you. Here's what happens in our church. Um, it's my birthday, so I'll just express myself and be, on, be honest here. Um, this, is, this is one thing that, uh, that, uh, that frustrates me, put it lightly. Um, what happens in our church is, like, we care a lot. This is a good thing. We care a lot about you being healthy and whole, about you learning how to take care of yourself, this idea of self-care. But what ends up happening is we vacillate between being burned out because we're doing too much, right? And then we go to the opposite extreme and we don't do anything at all, right? We vacillate between these, these two extremes. Man, I'm going to serve so hard. I'm going to love people. I'm going to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but I'm going to count others more significant than myself. I'm going to go for it, but I do so to where I'm almost dead, and I'm super tired and exhausted and burnt out, and then I do nothing except I isolate myself, and I binge watch the latest show on Netflix, which doesn't to me sound a lot like self-care, but that's what we do. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe if you've ever experienced burnout, if you've ever been burnt out, maybe you're burnt out. Not because you're doing too much stuff, not because you're serving too much, but because you're too disconnected from Jesus. Because I would argue that if you're connected to Jesus in this sort of vibrant relationship, and you're amazed every day at the extent to which he loves you, at the depths to which he went for you, then you'll never serve too much. You'll serve the right amount. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Like, look at Jesus. Be amazed by him and let it move you to love one another, to serve one another over yourself. If you're burnt out, maybe it's not because you're serving too much. Maybe it's because you're too disconnected from Jesus. Because where Jesus is, there's life. If you're connected to Jesus, you'll have life and you'll have it abundantly. Take inventory of yourself. This is not to guilt you into serving more. What I'm about to say is to challenge you to take inventory of your own life and maybe begin to see that some things are a little bit off. 
So we have at Christ City, um, to make these Sunday gatherings happen, it takes a lot of work. Like there are a lot of volunteers downstairs right now watching and singing music with and teaching your children about Jesus. There are a lot of people down there who are doing that every single week. There are people who showed up early this morning to set up those kids' spaces and to set up this platform and this music, all the sound gear. There are people who arrived early this morning. There's someone, Logan, who arrived earlier than that to pick up a truck and trailer that had a flat tire to go put some air in the tire and then to bring it here with all of our stuff because we don't store it in the school. There are people who arrived early to brew coffee, people who arrived to serve coffee, people who arrived uh, to print bulletins, people who uh, printed bulletins during the week and arrived to pass them out and greet you and say hello. There are over 100 volunteers who serve regularly to make these Sunday gatherings happen. But it is way too hard for us to find volunteers. Like all of those teams have two little volunteers. Most, not most, many volunteer roles take about an hour per month. An hour per month. And you're unwilling to give an hour per month, but in three days you can watch the entire season of 13 Reasons Why. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. You're not serving too much. You're too disconnected from Jesus. Because if you saw the extent, the depths to which Jesus loves you, you would be moved to serve and to love other people. I'd love for some of you guys to serve. I'm not trying to guilt you into serving. I'm trying to point out that there are inconsistencies in your life that you need to take inventory of and recognize that maybe there are some things that are off. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Be so moved by the humility of Jesus that you yourself are humble and you serve others over yourself. We need to reorient ourselves around our incarnate Lord as a church. And as we do so, we're going to be the most radically loving people that Memphis has encountered. Because that's Jesus, radically loving you to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right. Point number two is that Jesus empathizes with you. Jesus empathizes with you. Let me read this kind of selection of verses from Hebrews chapters 2 and 4. The writer of Hebrews in the first few chapters of this letter is trying to help his readers and us understand the humanity of Jesus, who he calls our high priest. That we have a high priest who became a human, so he can sympathize with us, so he understands what it's like to be us. So let me read these few verses. These verses blow me away. They give me such hope and comfort. So let me read these verses from Hebrews 2 and 4. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need." In Hebrews 4.15, it's on the screen, there's this, there's this word. Um, 
that is translated to English as sympathize, sympathize. But um, I think in context of all that's happening here, perhaps the better English translation of this Greek word would be the word empathize. Maybe not sympathize, maybe the better word would be empathize. These are two words that sound alike, and they even mean sort of similar things. So we, can, we become a little bit confused. Like, what's the difference? Sympathize, empathize. Why does it matter? It matters a lot. Let me show you the, uh, the dictionary definitions of these two words. Sympathy. Sympathy means feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Empathy means the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. The ability to understand and even to share the feelings of another. There's this famous John Steinbeck quote where he writes this, it means very little to know that a million Chinese are starving unless you know one Chinese who is starving. It means very little to know, what he means is like theoretically to know in your head that there are a million people in China who are starving unless you know, and he means like experientially, like personally know one Chinese person who is starving. And that's the difference between sympathy and empathy. They're both good things. Sympathy is just like he says, if I were to throw out some sort of staggering, unfortunate, like world statistic, like we would all feel sympathy. We would all experience sympathy. Like from our lofty position, we would look down and have genuine sadness and remorse and pity and sorrow for the plight or for the situation of another. But when you actually know someone, you're not up here in your lofty position, but you've lowered yourself so that you can understand them, so that you can even share in what they're experiencing. You've lowered yourself. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? And this, this idea is, is so crazy to me and so comforting to me that Jesus, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future, who holds the universe together with his word of power. He's ultimately powerful, ultimately authoritative, ultimately good, and he knows, like personally and experientially, what it's like to be you, and what it's like to experience the things that you're experiencing. This is one reason in our edible scroll readings, our daily Bible readings that we as a church are doing together, the first question that we ask you to journal just, just a few lines about is, where are you? Where are you today? What are you feeling today? And then you experience worship as you take those things to God because you're taking them to a God who knows what it's like. Like this week, I've been really tired. 
And I'm comforted to know that Jesus doesn't just know in his head what it's like. He knows, he's experienced what it's like to be tired. I know this morning that there are many of you who, um, as recent as last week, have experienced the difficult news of um, losing someone that you're close to, that you care about, to death. And uh, you're really sad. You're even hurt and angry. Jesus knows what that's like. John also writes that after Jesus heard about the death of one of his close friends, Lazarus, that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus knows what it feels like to weep in pain and in sadness and in hurt and in anger. Many of you recently have experienced uh, all of the deep hurt that goes with being betrayed by a close friend. How comforting is it to know that Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus has been betrayed by his friends to the point of his death. Jesus is with you wherever you are. Most of us in the room, all of us, if you're honest enough to say it, know what it's like to be lonely, to be lonely. Many of you are single. You're not yet married, and you long to be married. You long for a spouse, and you're really lonely, like you wake up every morning alone. And alone is one of the saddest words in the English language. A lot of you are married, but for many of you, marriage is the loneliest place you've experienced in your life. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. On the cross, Jesus experienced loneliness with God his Father. Throughout his life, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus walked in richer intimacy than you or I will ever experience. He walked in that sort of intimacy with God as Father. He, he had known that sort of intimacy with God as Father for all of eternity past, like a longer period of time than we can fathom, like infinity, right? And on the cross, he experienced disconnect. He experienced loneliness. Jesus knows what it's like to be where you are. So think about that. Don't just think about it. Consider it with your heart. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Jesus knows what that's like. He's been there. And he can be there with you. You don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with where you are. But you have a high priest who's been there, who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet he is without sin. So then, let us draw near with confidence to his throne, where we can receive mercy and grace and comfort in our time of need.
Jesus knows what it's like to be where you are. And as you, as an individual, and as we as a church reorient ourselves around our incarnate Lord in this way, we're going to experience that this is the comfort that we need to comfort and care for one another. That if we wrap our hearts around this more and more, as this settles into our heart and takes root, we'll be the most caring people that Memphis has ever experienced in the ways that we love one another and care for one another. The ways that we're not just sympathetic with one another, like me up here in my lofty position, pitying you for your low position and the pain that you're experiencing right now. Not, not, not that. But we, like Jesus, will learn what it means to lower ourselves so that we can actually share and understand one another and what you're experiencing. So that when I hear about your sadness, I know too what it's like to be sad and I can be with you just like Jesus is with us. As we wrap our minds around this, we'll be the most caring people that Memphis has seen. And this is, this is the heart behind what we have at Christ City called story groups. Groups where people can gather with one another in a smaller environment and share their stories and listen to one another's stories and share and be honest about what's going on in your life and have other people there who can be with you in it because that's the heartbeat of our incarnate Lord Jesus. So I encourage you, this summer, next fall, consider getting plugged into a story group so you can experience caring for one so you can experience being cared for by others, but so that you can also have a platform, have a means, have an outlet to care for others as Jesus cares for you. So to close, that's this, like, like I can see it in my head, what our church could look like as we orient ourselves around our incarnate Lord Jesus and how we would radically love one another. We would go to new depths in loving one another as we experience daily the depths to which Christ went to love us. And we would care for one another and be with one another as we experience daily the care um, and presence of Jesus our Lord, who is a high priest who can empathize with us. That is, man, that is what I hope and pray for and long for Christ City Church. So let's pray together. Lord, I am just blown away by the reality of the incarnation that Jesus would be born as a man. That you, God, love us so much that you would lower yourself to such depths, even de death on a cross, for us. Because in reality, we're, we're unable to love one another enough. But we know that you love us. Like in the cross, we see the extent of your love, that you love us 
not only on our best day when we're most loving, but on our hardest day after we've binged watched something for 13 hours on Netflix. Like, you still love us. You still died for us. Lord, would that reality move our church to be so loving and so caring and so present with one another? Would you be so present with us in such a way that it moves us towards that end? That is what we long for, for, um, for our good, for the good of our city, but also for the glory of Jesus, that more and more people would bend their knee and worship him, that we would be stirred to worship him more and more and more. We love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen.